all here this morning. This is kind of our official kickoff. I've been told I need to get a picture. So if everybody could lean in on the sides, that would be wonderful. Uh, okay, I'm going to do that, and I'm going to do that, and then I'll figure it out later. All right, done. Praise God. You know, uh, I, I, we've been working through the book of Galatians uh, for a whole one week, and, um, and we've got a long way to go. It's, we're actually going through this book uh, bit by bit all the way through to June with a few spaces in between, and so I encourage you to listen to last week's message. What we're doing is even though we're in a series, each message really is a bit of a standalone message, and so this week... We're going to get into some things in this next passage that I'm believing whether you are, have been a Christian for a long time or whether you are just thinking about Christianity or you don't have a clue and don't care, I'm believing that there's going to be something in this message that will hopefully speak to you and, and make you think a little bit. So I'm going to start by reading the passage from Galatians. Galatians was written by Paul. He wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. Paul's history was, uh, was colorful. He actually was brought up in the, in the religious uh, leadership of the time. He was a zealot. He was very passionate. He was very, very smart, very clever, and also was party to killing Christians before he himself became a Christian. But then after he became a Christian, he went ahead and started to, re, uh, to write uh, letters to the churches that he planted. And Paul uh, became a Christian very quickly after Jesus went back to heaven. And so his insight and his revelation, as we would say, is, is very, very interesting, very smart, very deep, and we can learn a lot from it. And so he's writing to this group of churches in Galatia, which is the southern part of Turkey, as we know it now. And, and they really were in an interesting situation. He'd started this church, and they were starting to drift away from the teachings of the gospel. And so we pick it up here in verse, uh, in verse 6. And so this is Paul writing to his the church, his friends at this church, and, uh, and let's just read along with what Paul has to say here. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him, that's Jesus, who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel Contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. And we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we thank you for your word. And Lord, I pray that over the next few minutes, that Lord, that you would enable us to get insight into what is going on in this passage. Lord, I thank you that as a pastor and as a preacher, I can be confident in your promise that says that your word will never return to you void, that, Lord, you will always be affected through your word. And so, God, I pray that you would use these words powerfully in all our hearts and our minds, but, Lord, in our spirits, that, Lord, you would bring change and conversion, that, Lord, that we would have our eyes enlightened uh, to know more about you this morning. We ask these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. You know, uh, the beauty of having been a pastor now in a one church for almost nine years is that stories that I have said nine years ago, I can use now because, uh, because the church changes. And, you know, we, we tell stories more than once for a reason. They're, they're good stories. And so 
This story all started when uh, Jack and Luke and Sarah and I and Zoe were heading over to a visit in Britain. Jack was very small. He was a toddler. At the time, he was maybe a couple of years old. And, and he was lively, like really lively. And for those of you who have had the joy of traveling on a plane with a toddler uh, for nine and a half hours, there is no fun and joy in that at all. We bought the drugs. I'm not even joking. Whatever it takes, we, were, we pumped that kid full of gravel right to the limit and maybe a little bit more. And that's on video and I don't mind confessing. And it seemed to have the opposite effect of what gravel should have done. He was wired. When we got him on the plane, he had noise he was making. We had bulkhead seats. We had the thing that you put into the, into the wall to put in. It was useless. He was screaming and yelling. And, and so then, you know, marriages just get closer in those moments, don't they? You just get more loving and more caring and, and more gentle, especially in those tense moments. And so Sarah and I were having discussions um, of a certain nature and trying to get this kid to be quiet. We just plugged the other two in, just plug them in. Uh, this is maybe 12 years ago, so we had the apparatus, just plug them in, and they were sat quite happy, and uh, Jack was going nuts. And, uh, and the, the, the cabinet tents were doing great, and, and things were just not good. Like a couple of hours in, I managed to get Jack to go to sleep. You could almost hear the whole plane go, wonderful. And I laid him at my feet because he was too big to go in the crib thing. I laid him at my feet and he was fast asleep. And babies just immediately become amazing when they're asleep, don't they? Just like, oh, this is so lovely. Get our meal. It was nice. The cabin attendant came along and she said, you know, she said, they really, you really shouldn't, you're not allowed to put him there because this is an emergency exit. And then she paused and went, that's fine, just leave him there. <laughs> Okay, good, thank you. She must have seen the look of panic in our faces. Please don't make us move him. So the meals were coming out. It was lovely. Sarah and I were sipping wine, juice, non-alcoholic, obviously. Just reminding ourselves of how beautiful and wonderful our marriage and everything. And look at him, he's so lovely. He's just angelic. And so she's coming. Any more wine or, uh, sorry, orange juice or anything like that? And I said, yeah, I'll have an orange juice. And so she gave me an orange juice. And I don't know what happened. But I grabbed hold of this orange juice and it slipped clean out of my hand and hit him square on the noggin, like boom. Covered him in sticky, cold, wet orange juice and he erupted with an energy that we'd never seen before. I mean, he just went crazy. And so the discussion started again and he just never settled down. It was brutal. It was absolutely brutal. One slip, one tiny little slip created this confusion and chaos and and just heightened energy it just was not good one slip one I don't even know what happened I I have no clue and it's amazing how the smallest thing can have such a massive consequence and and this is what Paul is saying here in this scripture he's saying look You've deviated, you've slipped up, you, you are making small decisions, but the end consequence is actually massive. 
that even though we might go, well, it's only a small thing, the consequence is actually huge. And so when Paul says, I'm astonished that you are quickly deserting him, he's like, listen, these these little deviations, these little slip-ups are actually going to result in something that we read later on. It's actually going to be condemnatory and it's going to be cursed. It's just going to be a dreadful, dreadful consequence. There is a cost to when we slip up. There's a cost when we deviate. And we mustn't ever forget that cost, that when we make mistakes, when we change the direction of our lives, the smallest little decisions, there's a cost. And though those decisions are not aligned with the way that we were created to live, they're aligned with the way our goals and our values as Christians, or whether you're just still exploring Christianity, your values and goals, you slightly deviate. There's a cost. There's a cost in your life. There's a cost in other people's lives. There was a cost for Jack. There was a cost for us. There was a cost for this whole plane. The smallest little slip has a cost. You see, Christianity has, makes amazing claims. Amazing claims. Like if you actually take the time to read the New Testament and start looking at the promise and the strap line to our series is Galatians and it's power and promise. You look at the power that comes through Christianity and the gospel. We're going to get into that. But you look at the promises. The promises are amazing. They are literally otherworldly. They are things that every human on this planet is striving for. It's the reason that we buy what we do, the decisions that we make, the, uh, the places we go to, the things that we direct our lives to, and not in them, in them terminating on those things themselves. We're looking for something else. And the Bible says that through Jesus Christ, we can gain those things, those things that we strive for, whether it's fulfillment, whether it's love, whether it's acceptance and belonging, if, if it's joy, not happiness, deep joy. Joy is irregardless of what's happening in your life. Happiness is connected with what's happening. So regardless of the circumstances, there's a deep-seated joy. Christianity promises that. Jesus promises that. Freedom, purpose, forgiveness, all these things and so much more is part of the package, if you will, that comes to us as a Christian. The power and the promise of becoming a Christian, is given to us when we accept Jesus, when we hear the call, just as we've heard from these wonderful young people this morning. And so Paul is saying, I am astonished that you would think about going in a different direction other than the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why he's so dogmatic. Now you might be coming to Christianity from the viewpoint, well, actually I think Christians are, are, are arrogant. And, and you know what? That's okay. Maybe we're so dogmatic that you think we're exclusive, that how do you know that you've got the corner on faith? What about all the other faiths? You see, there's a really interesting word in this, in, in all these, uh, in this first passage. You actually read it five times if you include verse 10. And it's this word here, gospel. Now, if I was to ask the average person what gospel meant, they might even think, you know, gospel music. But that word gospel has been chosen by Paul for a purpose. So here's, here's what I want to I suggest to you. We all have a gospel that we're banking on. Every one of us. Every one of us has a gospel that we are basing our belief, our life, our values, our goals, our dreams on. In other words, we have a gospel that we're hoping will bring all that which we're striving for to us. So I want to suggest to you, on a kind of a 50,000-foot level, there are basically four ways, four worldviews, four gospels that we have as humanity, doesn't matter, anywhere in the world, and we fall into one of these. 
Okay, the, the first one is the secular worldview, the, the secular gospel. That's the eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. There is no God, so who cares? I came from nothing, I'm going to nothing, and there's nothing in between. It's we came from whatever, we're going to whatever, and so whatever goes in between. I'm just going to live life well, I'm going to live life hard, I'm going to be kind, I'm going to be generous, all those good things. But you know, there is no God, so, um, so I'm just going to press on. That's the secular mindset, that's the secular gospel. I can do this, I've been given everything I need inside, I'm empowered, my own identity, I am enough, I can do this. And it sounds great, until you find out that actually you're not enough and, and it isn't enough and you haven't got enough power, but we'll, we'll come to that in a second. But you are banking on that being true. Now, apart from that being problematic in everyday life, logically and philosophically, that lens, that, that gospel, that worldview doesn't work either. Because most people who fall into this category would believe in evolution and would believe in, in um, the, the, the idea that the, the strongest will kill off the weak. And, and the reality is that we're not wired to be secular. Because pure secular mindset says, I am centered, nobody else matters. Which is contrary to evolution. If you actually look at evolution, evolution in its essence is that the weak will die off for the strong. I am strong, the weak will die off. That's the essence of evolution. But the challenge with that is people who would call themselves secular are still striving for things that are not secular. Either they're still striving for the good of somebody else or that we're seeking things that actually seem to be, that we just seem to be wired for more than just being secular. It's an uncomfortable place to be, but it's a gospel. The second is the religious gospel. This, this one, and, you, and I, I'm not including Christianity in this for a second, even though Christianity is a religion. Religious is the idea that, uh, that I'm going to work hard for a deity, and that deity is going to bless me. The secular mindset is I'm going to work hard for me and for my own and life will bless me. This is I'm going to work for a God, whatever that God might be, and it will bless me. Okay? The third one is the more agnostic. This is the I'm hedging my bets. (laughs) I'm not sure, but I'm not going to dismiss it just in case. It's almost like a combination of these two together. I hate to say this, and I say it lovingly with some sadness. A lot of Christians fall into this area. That they're actually believing that they have everything in of themselves that they can do life without Jesus, while at the same time claiming that they believe in Jesus. And the result is actually a kind of a messed up thinking. This is where the Galatians were heading. This is where a lot of Western Christians head. They wouldn't call themselves agnostic. They call themselves Christians. But they're actually combining the secular and the religious. Agnostic is, is still that I'm going to work hard in order for life to bless me, or I'm going to work hard in order for a deity to bless me, but either way, it all hinges on me and what I do. But agnostic is that there's something out there, and then we have Jesus. And I've separated it out for a reason, because Paul separates it out. Jesus himself separates himself out. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There is no other way. There is no secular way. There is no religious way. There is no agnostic way. Not just to get to heaven, but to actually live life with fulfillment and purpose. Now, there is a fourth way, and it is the way. And it's the claim of Jesus. And you saying that might be going, wow, that's really narrow-minded. That's, how, do you, how dare you say there is only one way, and that way is Jesus. 
But the reality is this, is whether you're in one, two, or three, you have a gospel that you're preaching to other people and saying that that's the way as well. So you can be atheist and you can be going, this is the way to live. Oh, so it's okay for the atheist to be narrow-minded about the way, but it's not okay for the Jesus believer to be narrow-minded and say it's the way. So we're all kind of evangelizing other people regardless of where you are on that list. You might look at that list and go, I don't fit. I probably... I could fit you in somewhere. Could fit you in somewhere. There's some commonalities. There's some commonalities. See, Paul uses the word gospel because this word gospel is very, very interesting. It actually comes from a word that in the Greek means messenger of news. So what happened is the Greek armies, they would leave their cities and they would go and fight the enemy. And because they were in the, the world that they are, there was no communication between the army and the city. Now, for us to understand what that would be like is that we in the city would watch the army leave, go over the brow of the hill and disappear, knowing they were going to war. Immediate anxiety would set in. Because if they lose, we die. If they lose, we become slaves. Because that's what happened in that ancient era. And so you can imagine the anxiety would raise because we, I, want, I want life. I, w- I don't want to be a slave. I don't want to be condemned. I don't want to be cursed. It all hinges on that army going over the brow of the hill. So if there was victory, what the army would do is send back a messenger, which is where we get this word gospel from. And they would bring the gospel news, the good news, the news, hopefully, that they had won and that somebody else had won your, your fight And you receive the victory. That's good news. And so you would receive this news into your life, hoping and praying that it was the news that would bring life, not death. That's where the word gospel comes from. And so if you put that into our talk this morning, here's what you get. You get this idea that we all have a gospel and we're hoping that it's going to bring us life. We're really hoping that it will bring us the thing that we all desperately need. And we look to the brow of the hill and we hope that the messenger comes and proves us to be life-filled. So the basic question has to be, is your gospel up to that? Is your gospel able to bring you that which you are desperately seeking or is there a cost to the gospel that you are believing in? A few years ago, my mom and dad had the joy of, of visiting Ireland. And so Madden, Glenn Madden, it, it, the Madden family is, is a very Irish name. And they traveled around Ireland. And my dad will tell this story far better than me. But they had an experience when they were traveling around Ireland of, of, of getting a little bit lost. And so I, I feel safe to be able to tell you this story because my heritage is Irish. Okay? So if there's anybody else who has a heritage of Irish... Just, just give me a break for a second, all right? Uh, because they stopped and they asked, they asked this Irish gentleman some directions. And they said, we'd like to get to, and I don't even remember where it was, Dad, but I'd like to get to this, this place. And so the, the Irish are very, very friendly. They love to chat. They're real characters, and they're, they're, quite, they're funny, you know? And, and so my dad stopped, and he said, he ran down his window, or pressed the button, I don't know how long ago it was, and, uh, and he asked this, this guy, can you give me the directions to wherever it was that they were going? And so this wonderful Irish gentleman that was dressed full head to toe in overalls and welly boots, gum boots, was just happy to help. And he said, yes, sir, what you need to do, 
is you need to go to the, the traffic lights and you need to turn. So he's talking about Dad. You need to turn right. And Dad went, sorry, can you say that again? Because he thought maybe he made a mistake. He says, yes, sir, you need to go to the traffic lights and you need to turn right. Dad said, so you mean that you need to go to the traffic lights and you need to turn left? He went, no. He says, you need to go to the traffic lights and you need to turn right. He said, but you, you, he says, you're putting your left hand out when you're saying right. So do I need to turn left or do I need to turn right? Because this is before GPS. This is important. I need to know which way we're going. It needs to be right. Otherwise, I'm going to be lost. So this wonderful Irish gentleman went, he says, you go to the traffic lights and you turn, you turn left. Right, Dad? Wonderful. You've got to make sure you get the right directions, otherwise you're going to end up lost. You've got to make sure that you end up with the right gospel. Otherwise, you're going to get tragically lost. And you're going to be clawing at things in the hope that that gospel gives you the thing that you are wired to be while all at the same time failing. And there's a cost. A cost to you. There's a cost to other people. Which is why Paul is saying, I am astonished. And it's why Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So if we can accept for a second that yes, Jesus is being narrow and dogmatic and so is Paul. But so are we in our gospel. What is the gospel? What is the reason why Paul is saying this is the only way? What is the reason why? What is the reason why we have these wonderful young people coming up and saying, I'm dedicating my life to Jesus? What is the reason why we come in here on Sundays and we worship and praise Him? What is the reason why that as Christians we get up in the morning and we spend time reading the Bible and we spend time praying? What is the reason why we tell other people about Jesus? Why do we do that? Because we believe it is the way, the truth, and the life. And if it truly is the way, the truth, and the life, the way, the truth, and the life, then how can we ever keep it to ourselves? But it doesn't answer the question, why? Why do we believe that? Why? Why are we going down to the beach and baptizing people? Because all baptism is, is a symbolic uh, visual um, uh, of what's happened on the inside. That they go under the water and it's saying that the old has gone, and as they come up, the new has come. What is the gospel? Number one, God created the world and he loves you. Christians, this is the gospel. Friends who are just on a wonderful journey, this is the gospel. God created the world and he loves you. Jesus said God loved the world. John 3.16, you see it at football games. For he so loved the world that he gave his only son, that God created the world and he loves you. There is so much I could unpack in it, but I haven't got the time. But the reality is, the truth is that God loves all people and that includes you. But Glenn, you don't know what I have done. You don't know where I have been. You don't know what's been done to me. You don't know what I've done to other people. You don't know what I've said. You don't know what I've seen. You don't know the broken cost that I am feeling in my life. And by the way, those words don't just come out of people who uh, are are struggling in life. Those words come out of people who are the most affluent in life as well. That there is this cost that is felt inside every one of us. And yet God says, I love you. 
And we find that hard because of maybe the way that our dads treated you or, or whatever it might be. But at the end of the day, the whole of the Bible starts off with the message of that you are loved. But Glenn, you don't know what I've done. I, I'm not worthy of that. You need to understand that God's ability to love somebody is far more infinite and bigger than we can ever imagine. See, we love conditionally. You do this, you do this, you do this, I'm going to love you. Whereas God doesn't love conditionally. He says, you are, I brought you into being. Which is why the greatest tragedy that people believe, one of the greatest tragedies that people believe, is that somehow you were an accident. They were just a bunch of chemicals that were brought together at the beginning of life. And, and life existed accidentally, and maybe even you were an accident. You are not an accident. You are loved. I'm watching um, the documentary right now on Netflix, and I highly recommend you watch it. It's absolutely brilliant. It's a four-part or five-part documentary about Bill Gates. Watch it. It's fascinating. This guy, I had no idea. I just thought a computer nerd who's done reasonably well for himself, but, you know, I, just, that, I had no clue. The capability that that man has mentally is just unbelievable. Unbelievable. And I said to Luke at the middle of the episode, we were watching it together, I said, I would be amazed if he doesn't believe in God. Because you cannot know as much as he knows without coming to the point of going, there's no way this is an accident. So I Googled it. I actually went, ironically, given that I was watching a Microsoft program, I went, hey Siri, (laughs) is Bill Gates a Christian? Like that. And oh, I have hearing aids. And Siri is answering me right now in my ear from my phone. And I'm not even kidding. My phone is right there. Look, Christianity. Look. That's it first. She's still going on. All right, thanks, Siri. Yeah, you write that down, Lyndon. I know you'll remind me of that in 30 years' time. And sure enough, Siri told me that he, even though I would, I would say maybe hasn't a saving faith, but he has a faith in a creator and a designer and goes to church regularly, believes in God. Because that's where you get to. God created. God loves you. The whole message of Christianity is that there is a God who personally cares for you and has a desire for you to know him, which is why Paul says, I'm astonished that you're deviating away from this because what could be better? What gospel are you following after that could be better than this? What gospel are you following after that is not going to bring condemnation and curse upon you in comparison to this? You are loved, you were created, you are not an accident, and his love is infinitely greater than anything you can bring to him in your past. Infinitely greater. Number two, all of us have sinned, every single human, including you. It became popular in church about 20, 30 years ago, not to mention sin or God's wrath or needing to be saved from anything. We took crosses away. We didn't want to offend people. The problem with that is, is that's not biblical. The Bible is filled with examples of broken people sinning just like you and me and having no way of doing anything about it outside of God. Every one of us has sinned. Every one of us is a sinner, which is why there's statements like this that our culture doesn't like, but it's true. And we know it to be true deep down inside. We just don't like talking about it or admitting it. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All. You know what all means in the Greek? All. Every one of you. Every one of you. 
and every one of me. We've all sinned. Christians believe there's a standard outside of themselves and we sense it. We believe it. Even if you are not a Christian, you know there's a standard. Otherwise, you have no capability of saying that is wrong. Because if you don't have a standard to which you're pointing out to compare it to, then how do you know it is wrong? Even the most heinous crimes, how do you know that's wrong if there's no ultimate standard? God is the standard. That's what Christians believe. That's why Paul said, why would you stray from this? What are you going to do with that sin? What are you going to do? Because there's a cost and you're going to have to deal with it here, now and in eternity. What are you going to do? Well, I just think my own way is better. That is a gospel that is deviating away and the ultimate reality is it's going to cost you and it's going to cost those that love you around you. All people are loved by God and have sinned and that includes you. That includes you. And when we get to that point, when we realize that there's nothing we can do, which is why my wonderful Chinese son got to that point. And we actually saw it happen before our eyes. It was like, it was amazing. It was like, sometimes you have to try really hard. And you need to understand that, that, and I'm speaking about him, hopefully not embarrassing him too much, but he was closed, like uninterested. Until one day God said, hey, through his Chinese aunt, hey, maybe there's something to do with this. Maybe start asking some questions. It was unbelievable. But he said, he said, and I knew, I could see he was choking back tears. He said, I, I know I have sin in my life. And you see, that's where you have to get to when you realize there's nothing you can do. It. You don't grow out of it. You just get better at it. Right? Good at hiding it. Kind of. One of our mutual friends uh, was a young pastor and uh, he was sent to somebody's house to go and visit them. I've told this story before. And, uh, and he's visiting this beautiful house, and it's, and it's owned by an older couple, more affluent, wealthy couple in the church, and they've got beautiful furniture and white cream, thick pile carpet, and, and, and Andy was on his best behavior because he didn't want to mess this up. He's a young, young guy, and he was just visiting them, doing a pastoral visit, and things were going really well. He invited them in. And, and in Britain, as odd as this is, it used to be that when you went into somebody's house, you don't take your shoes off. You do more so now, but at that point, you know, you don't take your shoes off, which is a bit odd, really, but that's the British way. Um, and so Andy goes in, and he sat, and they said, would you like a cup of tea? And Andy was like, oh, yes, please, that'd be lovely. So Andy sat best behavior on the edge of the couch because, you know, he didn't want to sit all the way on because he might mess it up. It's a beautiful room. And they both go off to go and make tea. And, and, and he sat there, and he becomes aware of this aroma. And he's like, oh. And he looks down, and he sees brown marks going across this white carpet all the way to his feet. Now, before you get offended, there's lots of mention in the Bible about poop. So if you're offended by that, I'm on safe ground. Okay? He sits, and he looks at his feet, and he's like, do the smell, white carpet, dog poop, dog jobby all over the place. What am I going to do? And he's like, he tells the story so beautiful. He's like, do I move furniture around to try and hide it? Do I, do I stand up and try and cover up as much of it as possible? Do I, do I just run? Do I just, just book it out of here? Maybe they won't notice that I was ever here. And he sat there and they come back in. He said, I am so sorry. He said, I brought dog jobby into your house and I got no way of dealing with it and they went they were lovely they said it's 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 fine don't worry about it 
And because uh, this used to happen quite often in British homes, I seem to remember, because it doesn't happen so much here because people are very diligent about picking up their jobs. Isn't it awkward? I've just got to go there for a second. I, I have to. You know when you stand there with your dog? And then the roles reverse because you're picking up and your dog's going, what? what? It always makes me giggle. It's embarrassment and then embarrassment. Why are they keeping it? Um, so, but in Britain, he used, to, and he used to say this. He used to say this in Britain. Just let it dry out. It'll be better to get out once it's dry. Right, mum? <laughs> She's nodding. That's what you got. What? So anyway, they were fine. The reality is this. Is we've got all that sort of stuff all over our lives. You go, What? We have stuff that we're hiding. We have stuff we want to run from. We have stuff that we're frantically moving the furniture of our lives around in the hope that nobody will notice what's actually going on in the inside. If my kids can look this way, if my job can be this way, if my communication, if my looks, my fitness, whatever it might be, I'm going to move the furniture around in the hope that actually the stink that's going on inside won't be noticed. And what are you going to do with that? What are you going to do? Because there will come a point... When the cost of moving the furniture and the the cost of just trying to run and hide will not be good enough. Because the reality is the next part of the story is that God is just as much as he is loving. Now, we read the Bible and we go, loving God, loving God, loving God. Oh, God is so loving. It's like great big uncle God in the sky. Like God is just so caring and loving. He would never punish us for our sins. He wouldn't do that. How could he ever do that? The reality is that the very same place that we go to, to read about a loving God, and you will read it in here, absolutely, also talks about a just God. A God that will say, I cannot let this go because by letting this go would make me unjust and therefore not perfect. So there has to be, there has to be some, uh, some punishment, some, some, um, some t- the, for the sin to be forgiven, there has to be justice. And I explained last week about the courtroom drama. Do you remember God the judge and, and us in the dark and our sin? And God would not be a just God if he just went, oh, forget it, it's fine. But Jesus comes in because the wages of sin is death. And if you don't believe in eternal death, think about death now. Think about that time when you just feel like, I don't know what to do with this muck that's in my life because I, can't, I haven't got enough furniture to shift around on it. So I'll go to the counselors and the psychologists and the self-help section and I'll do yoga and I'll do this and I'll deep breathe and I'll listen to that and I'll download that app. Maybe that's the answer. Maybe that's the answer. Furniture shift. Furniture shift. And all the time God is saying, listen, there's a better way. See, the story, the narrative, the Bible is the story of the human race and its relationship with God because our sin separates us from God. But God loves us, remember? One sin breaks our relationship with him. Well, I'm quite good, not good enough. If I was only 99% faithful to Sarah, that 1% would destroy my marriage, potentially. So you can't be 99% perfect, 100% perfect. And that is the only way that we have connection with God. It's the only way that we actually start fulfilling some of the things that we're all striving for. So how is that ever going to come about? Because the furniture shifting and the good works and the charitable giving and the blah, 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 just doesn't work. We know that to be true. All are loved by God. All have sinned. 
All are separated from God, and that includes you. Four, I love this bit. Freedom is available to all by the death of Jesus. So Jesus, in his purity, comes for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life that starts today, not just when you die in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's why Paul said, I am astonished that you are deviating away from this. Because what answer do you have in your life that is going to bring you this? What gospel are you believing that you believe is going to bring this message over the brow to bring you life and not condemnation? Do you really believe that the cost that you are feeling and will feel is going to be answered by your own effort because it just doesn't work? Every other belief, every other gospel, every other worldview, this is what Paul is saying in this passage, says you must work for acceptance, enlightenment, life, fulfillment, purpose, freedom, forgiveness, You have to work harder, do better, fit in more, look this way, go there, say this, get that job, get that partner, have these kids, sacrifice to this deity, work harder, work harder, work harder, work harder. Christianity says, Jesus says, the gospel says, you cannot earn it, but you can receive it. Which is why these kids, sorry Aiden, you're not a kid. These young people, these amazing people saying, I received that. He is mine. The promise and the power is mine. Because all are loved. All have been separated, uh, have sinned. All are separated from God. Forgiveness and new life is available to all by the death of Jesus. And it's a gift. And that includes you. That's the gospel. Christian friends, that's what you communicate to your friends and family. You can point out the cost. And there is a cost. Whenever you start shifting furniture around... There's a cost. There's a cost. Start sacrificing your kid on the altar of business or money. There's a cost. There's a cost when you become to the place where you can't actually deal with the stuff that's going on inside, no matter how good you look. There's a cost. And that ultimate cost, the Bible says, is death. And it feels like death has started now. For many. For your neighbors. For your friends. For some in this church. And Jesus says, I am life. No more slavery. You can have freedom. You can have freedom. All are loved. This is Christianity. This is the gospel. This is what Paul said. Why would you deviate from this? This is what we're going to celebrate in about 20 minutes down at the beach. This. This is the gospel. Nothing else. And we add to it. You don't need to add to it. Jesus is enough. So we have a choice. We have a choice. And so I come to this place now and I'm going to pray. And my prayer is this. That just for like Leo and Aiden and the girls, that this kind of grips our mind, our soul, our spirit. And it might be even as we sing together in just a second, that while you do that, you go, God, thank you that I am loved. Thank you that you created me. Thank you that there is freedom in you. I need that. Jesus, forgive me. Jesus, come. Promise and power, come. Because it's a gift, you just need to receive it. It's so beautifully simple and yet eternally powerful. The power and the promise of Jesus Christ as shown through the gospel. Don't ever deviate from it, Christian friends. Don't add to it. Don't change it. 
Stick with it, worship it, celebrate it, pray it, read about it, share it. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you that I can be confident in declaring the truth, the way, the life of you, Jesus. I thank you, Lord, that you never fail us. But Lord, my prayer, my heart as a pastor, as a friend, as just a human being, Lord, is that more and more people in the Kelowna area and in this area, Lord, would come into a realization that the gospel they are chasing lacks power and brings cost. That Jesus, that you would be our king. You would be the one that we worship and bow down to. And so, Lord, I pray now as we sing together, Lord, declaring the truth, declaring the gospel, that, Lord, that you would speak to us, that, God, that there would be, that you would draw men and women and children to yourself, even as we sing. And, Lord, as we go and we celebrate baptism together, I pray that that would be a powerful moment. Hallelujah. King Jesus. King Jesus, we love you. Let's stand together.